Anybody remember what Matt talked about last week? What's that? God. It's church. He probably talked about God. Image of God. Oh, is that what you said? Yeah, he was in Genesis talking about the image of God. I thought I would play off of that. Uh, Mary Beth tells me that I have one message, and no matter how much I teach, no matter how many places, no matter how many times, it's always the same message. And I've decided I'm okay with that. So today I'm going to give you my message again. Uh, It's always the same thing. I could probably put in a sentence or two. It's basically this. Each one of us is infinitely more as a being than we could possibly comprehend. We are like a little tiny, tiny baby, barely conscious version of what we are becoming eventually. That's it. Apparently that's my message. I have discovered that the world throws in great volume, throws things at us to distract us from that truth. And it does so very successfully. Uh, So I'm just gonna try and go through, back, back to Genesis a little bit, where Matt was last week, talk about the image of God, what kind of that is, kind of from my perspective, and then go to the Bible can be its, its little uh, visual tool here. See, Genesis, beginning, page one, page two, page three, and then Revelation is a book at the very end. Actually, this one has like a dictionary and a bunch of stuff at the end that's not actually Bible, so trust me, this is the end. And then in the middle, this stuff, stuff happened. A lot of stuff happened. So there's the Garden of Eden, there's Genesis, there's the creation of, I don't know, I guess everything. And then stuff happened. And Revelation is kind of this wild, epic dream that John, a a friend, one of the disciples and a close friend of Jesus uh, had when he was an old man way after the time of the Gospels. He had this epic vision and he wrote it down. We're going to look at that and a few of the things in between. So each of us is a microcosm of all of us in a way. You're on a journey as an individual. I am on a journey as an individual. I really feel it today because I've been thinking about these things. And then when we came, we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Not only do I get to sing in Shakespeare, which is fun, but uh, one of my earliest memories involves that song. I don't know exactly how old I was, but I was young enough to be on my mom's shoulder being held. 
my memory goes back really far. It's, I used to embarrass my parents with all kinds of stuff. Uh, but I remember just being on her shoulder and kind of the rhythm of her motion and just being half aware. And she was singing that. And I no idea what it meant. Wasn't curious about what it meant. It just I was just happy laying there on my mom's shoulder, listening to that voice. And it probably happened many times, actually. That would be something that would have repeated. Uh, and knowing her, she was probably praying on some level that that would get into me, because that would be her way, uh, that awareness of God's faithfulness. Fast forward. <laughs> 59 years, uh, I understand what that song means now. Because life uh, is hard. There's a trick that I don't think most of us like until we really, really grow and really mature and really start to understand it. Then we do like it. I'm not quite there, but I can see it from here. The trick is, life is supposed to be hard. And if it's not, hardness will be arranged. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, created in the image of God, let, let, let's, uh, I'm just gonna sit here and talk spontaneously off the top of my head for the entire time, so I'm gonna discipline myself and go to the scripture here. But track with me. So back in the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Anybody read Hebrew? In Hebrew, it's more beautiful. That's pretty beautiful. I like it in English. But hovering over the surface of the waters in English is uh, not necessarily alive. Waters are not necessarily alive. Hovering as an action is not necessarily alive. But in Hebrew, this is a reference to a giant bird hovering. Like if you've ever seen a hawk or a falcon hover, it's very alive. It's specifically hovering over its own eggs. Very alive, very poetic, very beautiful. So in, the, in Hebrew poetry, we're given this image of God, and we always have to come up with some sort of either anthropomorphized or animal-like, or we have to metaphor God, because how in the world do you reference infinite life of the universe and beyond. I mean, you could say that every time. Even that doesn't sound alive enough. It doesn't sound personal enough. But that's what we're created in the image of, apparently. Incomprehensible, infinite, undiable, unkillable, un decayable life 
that's the nature of God from all kinds of perspectives. So if we're created in the image and likeness, as it says, of God, how do you even process that? Most people, they hear that I think, they ignore it. And that's understandable. Because what exactly would you start thinking more than five or six seconds? The image of God, okay, it sounds religious. God, big old man in the sky, uh, he's our father, we're his kids, okay. And even that's all metaphor and works and doesn't work in other ways. And so this living, hovering over infinite depth, creating life and new life, it's like we're the eggs. We are the, we are the thing to become something like our parent, ultimately somehow. So God makes the world, God makes people. Talked about that last week. Everyone is created in the image of God. Like Matt was saying last week, every time you see anyone, image of God. C.S. Lewis said that the closest approximation you could see to God in this world is the face of any human being. Now include all beautiful skies and sunsets and forests and nature and all of the things you love and the ocean and creatures and beautiful, beautiful things, including all that. The closest approximation to God would be the face of a human being. Not the physicality, not the animal fleshy thing, but the unseen. You know when you look at someone you love You're not thinking about the shape of their face necessarily, or, you know, in fact, that's changing in all of us. Uh, there's an unseen presence behind every face that lives, right? And that's what we try to see in each other. It's a longing, it's a longing for intimacy. We scare the crap out of each other. You know, too much eye contact for five or six seconds and you're super nervous and it's like, and yet, at the same time, you wish for it. And when you find someone safe enough and loving enough and patient enough, eventually, those of us lucky enough, what do you do? You spend time looking into each other's eyes. Not much happens there, but it touches on a very deep place. It's that unseen life behind the face. That unseen life that you are, that you're looking out of your eyes as, that's, that's you. And it's very much like all of the other yous. God did something he turned to us, his creation, into multiplicity of individuals. And that's the middle part of the book. Stuff happens. We go on this epic journey, all cultures, I'm, I'm, you don't have to agree with me or believe what I say. I'm, I, I'm unoffended. I'm just processing life as best I can. 
But I want to share these things. But I'm going to assert some things you can do with whatever you'd like. I would assert that in every culture, everywhere, in every time, every group of people that's ever lived and lives right now, including this room, what everything is really about in terms of what we're conscious of every day and what we want to deal with and what we start planning around and what, what occupies us is how to deal with this individuation in which we live. How, how am I going to deal with I can't exist in complete autonomy all by myself. In fact, if I had a planet that was just my own world with everything I love, except no one else ever, just me, I would think no matter how cool a planet, I would think I died and went to hell, right? I desperately need all of you. And there's this passionate energy that we exert every day to do a lot of avoiding of each other, a lot of hiding from each other, and that's it. That's what's going on. That's somewhere deep in our soul. We kind of know that behind every face is an infinite life that I need to be careful around. The specific lists of reasons as to why each of us would be careful vary greatly, depending on how people have treated us. If all you've ever experienced is people just delight in you and think you're the coolest thing ever and give you stuff, your life isn't hard yet. Give it time. But if you've been hurt deeply by someone you believed loved you, which is a ton of us, uh, you start to know what I'm talking about. I'm totally going spontaneous again. Okay. When I was a kid, little story. I'm sorry if you've heard this before. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I take that back. Some of you may have heard this before. You get the privilege of hearing it again. So when I was a little kid, uh, I was a very outdoorsy kid. Loved animals, loved nature. Even in a way, kind of loved getting scraped up because of the sheer contact with the earth and stuff. That was me. So there was a place near one of the places we lived. We moved all over the place. But there was this one place, a place where we lived the longest, that I called the Lagoon. Very romanticized name for an old pond. Uh, and I would go to the Lagoon by myself. And uh, there would be these dragonflies flying around, like they do. And they're huge. You guys have seen them, and they're really bright colored. And I really loved the dragonflies, and they scared me a little bit. I kind of wasn't, you know, a butterfly, you know, could land on your face and you're okay. There's something about some bugs just are wonderful. 
some are not. Dragonflies are in between, right? So I really liked them, but I kind of didn't want them on me, but sometimes they would land on me and I would kind of allow it, but I was really taken with them and with their wild colors, just vivid metallic blues and deep rusty red color on some of them. So anyway, one day I'm at the lagoon and I would, there was like a six or eight foot little cliff thing on one side with a waterfall, right? Waterfall. It was, I don't know, maybe this wide and a muddy trickle, right? So I would jump off of that into the lagoon and I would swim in there. And one day I came out of the water and I felt something on my, in the back of my, my tendon, my Achilles tendon, right in the back of my heel, I felt something squeezing me after I got out of the water. And I looked down and there was this big insect of some kind, ugly as fill in the blank, uh, ugly and it was wet and it was muddy and I had, it had got my foot while I was in the water and followed me out, right? And I went to shake it and it wouldn't come off. It was really gripping my foot. So I had to grab it and pull it off and it was like wiggling and I did not like it at all and I threw it in the pond, the lagoon, and just kind of grossed me out. And I looked into the water and there must have been about a hundred of those right where I had just been. They were just all over the bottom and they were caked in mud, caked. Like not just dirty because they were in the bottom, but they, like they were, it's like they did that to themselves or something. And I really hated that little bug. And I'm gonna leave that story hanging and dangling right there, unfinished, till later. I will return to that, make sense of it. I'm gonna go into the middle of the biblical history here in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, let's see. No, let's go 2 Corinthians chapter four. Verse six, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Behind every face is infinite life. And we have this treasure in jars of clay, metaphor for physical body, jars of clay. Nobody thinks a jar of clay, picture what they would have pictured, just a pot, a terracotta pot. Nobody would think of that as infinitely valuable or something to treasure forever, even though it's a good thing and it has value. Our bodies are good things that have value, obviously. They carry us around. They provide 
innumerable ways of connecting with each other, which is back to that longing and that fear. They provide ways of hiding from each other. Sometimes that's important, not so much as we think, but sometimes. We have this treasure, this light of the image of God inside of us hidden in jars of clay to show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We can do all kinds of things to make our body fit. We don't really know how it works. We act like we do. It's, 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 it's massive automatic systems. We just make a few simple choices and we get results. But we can make those choices, right? But the light inside, it's just there. It's made. It exists. When you were two years old, it was exactly the same as it is right now. Think about, remember a moment. Pick a random moment from your childhood. That's still you, the same you that's remembering it right now. Someday you'll be able to remember this moment if you chose. And like when you were two, you will one day be so much more mature than you are now that you will seem now like a two-year-old. Truth. Ponder that if you will. So we got this treasure hidden in jars of clay. And then the part we don't want to read. Somehow in that condition, it says we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We know our bodies can be crushed. We ourselves are not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down and not destroyed. Skipping down a few verses, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, bodily, physically, we are wasting away. Unpleasant thought, but all of us are wasting away. Outwardly. Inwardly, we are being renewed. Oh, I like the sound of that. Inwardly, we are being renewed. Opposite direction, kind of. Day by day, in our routine, for light and momentary troubles, I would say speak for yourself, St. Paul, but he's experienced more troubles than I have, so I can't say that. And he's saying light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, fleshy stuff tangible stuff, what we call solid, our possessions, our money, but on what is unseen, the life behind the faces, the life inside. For what is seen is temporary and what is unseen 
is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in, tent, body, uh, is destroyed, we have a building, tent contrasted with a building, a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. I wish I could spend 45 minutes going off on this part right here, because I love it so much, and I think a few of you would. What it meant for Adam and Eve to be naked and unashamed had nothing to do with their, their body being draped with anything. It was a profound reality. They really did lose a massive part of themselves in the story. And we are born into that condition. And we do long. People think of it a million different ways. This is how Paul thinks of it. We got his words and I'm just using them. People long to be found clothed. And it's got nothing to do with cotton or linen. It has to do with being outwardly an exact and true and whole and ordered and beautiful and complete and permanent manifestation bodily of who you really are. So you yourself can be seen at a glance. What would that be like? I have no idea. But I think our first parents experienced it. Am I going too far off here? I, I don't know. While we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's cool. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose. That's cool. And has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I'm liking this part a lot. I'm gonna skip a few things because of the time. I always have way, 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 way too much. Uh, back in Genesis, rivers watering the earth, tree of life growing, something horrible happened. We call it paradise, but I don't know. I really, really struggle with that place being called paradise because of that serpent who lived there and seemed to run the show on at least one particular day. Not paradise. But something in the story in the beginning happened to our first, the first of us. Whatever that really literally looked like, I got a pretty good imagination and I enjoy thinking about it, but I ultimately don't know. But something happened. Because here we are and Paul is explaining, the Bible is explaining stuff that we all experience. Skip to the end of the Bible. See, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and there was an angel with a flaming sword, very dramatic. You can't come in, why? Because if you come in, you might eat of the tree of life. Can't have that. 
not in your current condition. We don't want to make a permanent version of this. I'm guessing. But after all this stuff happens, you get to the end of the Bible, last page, literally last page. John, in his epic vision, then the angel, show, an angel had been showing him a bunch of stuff in his dream. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. A city's been built where there was a garden, apparently. Uh, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Yep, same one from the beginning. Stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. I like this. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The nations, of course, are that part of human development that happened in the middle. Cultures, nations, civilization, all of our troubles, all of our beauty, all of our wonder, all that stuff. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face, not this fleshy stuff, the reality, the unveiled face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. It doesn't say he will reign forever and ever. It says they will reign forever and ever. You're God's kids. I don't know what we grow up into, but it's something capable of reigning forever and ever. And it's okay to think about that and to feel your existence as bigger than this world tells you that it is. So when I was in my 30s, I was in a lot of pain. Week after week after week, month after month, year after year. Uh, and I went to visit a place that I know and love. My brother Tim knows and loves it, Ned's Ranch. Uh, and he had a lagoon. Worthy, worthy of the name, lagoon. It was beautiful. Trees along the shore. It was a small lake. It was on his property. It was just his. It was beautiful. There's a couple of canoes there and horses coming down, drinking off the edge of it, and grass and birds. And it was a beautiful place, and I needed a beautiful place. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm just, I'm praying. And I'm telling God, it's like a fork in the road. I can go toward despair. Most of us know something about looking down that road. Or I can go toward hope. It's weird. Despair has a certain attraction because you have some control. Hope has obvious attraction, but no real control. You have to put your trust in some other things. And so 
I'm choosing hope, and I'm praying, I'm saying, God, there's got to be more than this. This can't be me. This can't be the end of the matter. I remember all this as I'm thinking, and don't have time to tell all the stories, but it's really vivid. And I'm sitting there, something interesting happened. I'm looking in the water, what do I see? A bunch of big, ugly, muddy bugs crawling around the bottom of this beautiful little lake. And I remembered that day when I was a kid and that thing that grabbed my foot and I'm watching them. I love it when God does this. Sometimes he'll just do something just because he loves us. He'll just say, hang on, let me talk to you for a second. This was one of those moments. I'm looking at a particular one and that particular one crawls up out of the water, comes up next to me, crawls up onto this plant, this stalk, and is just hanging on to the stalk, right next to me, a foot from my face. And I watched this whole thing, took a little while. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, you are like the ugliest thing I have ever seen. Just sat there and the mud fell off and then it began to shake violently, weirdly, and its back split open. And two things happened in me simultaneously. For just a second, I was kind of grossed out, and then I realized what I was watching. Inside wasn't guts. It was vivid metallic blue. As I sat and watched this dragonfly emerge from its former self. And I watched the whole thing, and it crawled out of its skin into its true self. And just as if it had had experience, it just, it just, it was just crumpled up and, and it kind of did this. Except it had four of them. Uh, and pretty soon there's these straight wings and with no practice, no instruction, no nothing, took off, perfect flight. And then I noticed all the other dragonflies and realized from where they had come. You get my meaning. Life can be happening in the mud at the bottom of a pond. And from there, it takes a boatload of faith to believe in what your heart knows to be real life, that this can't be it, even though there are some amazing and beautiful moments. So I had to skip a lot. Apparently, I had about two hours worth of stuff, sorry. Uh, I believe that Jesus is the best example ever to walk the earth to show us how it's done, to show us this odd balance that we need to strike between, okay, I'm this physical animal thing, true, 
but there's this other celestial, spiritual self that has far deeper longings than I can account for in the flesh. Also true. And he, uh, read about Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. Read about Jesus before Pilate. Jesus said, are you a king? Or Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus said, I am a king. My kingdom is not of this world. And he says a few things about that. So if you care about your ultimate future beyond the grave, which you don't have to wait for the grave to start it, by the way, eternal life, live it now in the body. And death will begin to lose its sting. But this, we have the bread and the cup as a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus. The flesh stuff that he walked in at the bottom of the pond with us, teaching us about the spirit stuff. So every time we take that bread and the cup, we are identifying as flesh with flesh and as spirit with spirit. So let's go to that. <clears throat>